Scripture today is Matthew 8:18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. When a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. All right, good morning. Ready for a sermonette? I normally talk fast, but fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to talk super fast. Um, <clears throat> seriously, um, the work that they are doing in South Africa is incredible. When I was their age, I was really good at like Halo 2. Like, how do you feel right now? Like, <laughs> incredible work. Um, and it goes perfect with what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to start right here. I'm just going to get moving. Are you ready? When Jesus saw the crowd, so first off, we're in Matthew 8, 18 today. So turn on your Bibles and go there. Um, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Um, I've, I grew up hearing this preached and interpreted in a sense that was like, uh, Jesus had been doing miracles and he was tired and all these people are, are piling in and he's, and he's doing miracles and so he's tired and he's like, oh, there's a lot of people and maybe he's a little introverted. Um, and so he says, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. And so he goes across, forcing everyone to sort of walk around and he gets some time to himself. And it was used sort of as a, like, as a, as a lesson of, this is why once in a while you have to take a Sabbath and get away. Now, I appreciate the sentiment way off. So I'm going to show you something. This is a map uh, not a very well-drawn one or anything. Uh, it, it's a map of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Capernaum, where Jesus was, is right about here on this X. Um, Jesus says, we're going to get in a boat. We're going to cross the lake. He literally says, he gave orders to cross the lake. So we're crossing the lake, and Jesus ends up here in this other city, um, Gadarenes, Gadarenes. I'll, I'll get it right next week. I haven't opened it all up and looked at it. It's the next passage. Um, but he ends up in the city called um, Gadarenes, Garanos, whatever. Um, doesn't matter. Uh, now, up there you see these giant letters, squiggly letters, and it says Galilee. Um, the, the, the area of Galilee here, if I may, uh, let's do this. Galilee goes about like that. Oh, yeah, that's nice. White. Great choice, Tommy. Here, let's do this. This is Galilee over here. Now, Jesus is going to this area here. There's a border that runs just like this. And this area here is called Decapolis. Um, Let me uh, open that up for you. Decapolis. Um, Deca means ten. Polis is the Greek word for city. Literally means the ten cities. I had the sniffles. I'm going to sniffle. Um, it means the ten cities. Um, now, they're in Galilee. They're going to cross to Decapolis. Galilee was the place where the Jewish people had determined the, the, the area of Galilee would be only Jewish. The only people that would live there. We, we just, they just talked about apartheid and, and these ideas. Um, this is really important to understand. Uh, the Jewish people planned on Galilee, also the region of Judea, 
to be only Jews living there. The, the plan was to kick out all the Romans, all the occupying forces, and it's just going to be us with our beliefs. And if people want to know God, and if people want to worship God, they're going to have to come to us and assimilate to us. They're going to have to obey the, uh, the boundary markers of our society, circumcision, obeying the Sabbath, um, and, uh, and the, the, uh, the rules on, on what you can eat and what you can't eat. So the dietary laws. These three things are the things that, that sort of set them apart from everyone else and said, this is who we are. And if you want to know God, and if you want to be reconciled with God, and if you want to be a part of God's people, you will come here. They did not send missionaries. They didn't go anywhere else. They expected all of the world to see their greatness and become like them. This may sound very familiar to you. Our nation does this. And in fact, every nation does this. Every nation wants to become this really great people so that everyone else will look at them and say, well, we ought to be more like them. And they all argue for who they are and, and how great they are. The Decapolis was the Roman counterpart to Judea, to Galilee. All of Galilee, they wanted to be Jewish and great and Jewish and the world they believed would eventually be Jewish. Um, the Decapolis was filled with cities um, that were basically there to promote Greek philosophy and thought. They believed the, the Greek way of life, the Greek philosophy in the Roman Empire, that the Greeks were the greatest and everyone else, they called them barbarians. In fact, today, if you go to Greece um, and you go into like, you go off the beaten path of the tourist areas and you go speak English, they're all going to look at you and they li will likely call you a barbarian. My brother goes there all the time. He studied Greek there for several years and he told me all these stories about him getting called a barbarian. And eventually they would say, he would just buy into it. They'd be like, where are you from? He'd say, I'm just a barbarian. And they would get really mad. And one time this one called the police on him for calling himself a barbarian and being happy about it. All right? And the police were like, you shouldn't come over here. He's like, okay, whatever. Um, trying to be a good missionary, trying to keep the peace. Sometimes you get sarcastic, I guess. Um, now, they were the opposite of the Jews. They wanted everyone to be Greek. So we have these cultural boundaries. And so, Jesus, um, let me read the passage to you again. With this in mind, let me read this passage to you. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he's looking around. Everybody kind of looks the same. Everybody's the exact same race. Everybody's the exact same religion. Everybody is the exact same, uh, has the exact same thought process. They're, they're being healed. They're finding healing and wholeness. Jesus is working with them, making them whole again. Um, And it says, Jesus saw the crowd around him and he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Think about that. He looks around him. Everybody's there. Everybody's exactly the same except for a centurion. All right? And he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Now, question. Something you may not have ever asked about this passage. Who's Jesus talking to? We assume he's talking about the 12. Um... We assume um, that he's not speaking to the crowd. We assume that he's not speaking to us. We just assume that he's, no, he's got his own particular people. If it's something we like to hear, like if Jesus is saying, everybody gets cake, they would all say, oh, he's talking to us. <laughs> But Jesus is saying, we're going to go to your enemies. We're going to go to the places you don't want to go. Get in the boat. Cross the lake. 
Go to the other side of the lake. Um, Jesus intends to bring healing. Um, he intends to bring wholeness and goodness. He intends to work for the benefit of those on the other side of the pond. That's what he intends to do. Jesus' audience did not like this. Jesus' followers, um, his disciples who had just heard about this new kingdom, this whole new way of following Jesus, um, likely weren't fans of this. Now, um, so as the story goes, Jesus makes this statement, and then there are two people who respond, two particular people. Um, The first one, uh, let's look at this. Uh, Verse 19, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So first, let's determine who this guy is. I want you to get a good picture of what this looks like. Jesus is standing there. He's surrounded by the Jewish people, his own people. Uh, They all think the same. They all are the same people. And they believe all the world should be just like them. And then Jesus says, cross the pond. And then this guy steps up and goes, well, I will follow you anywhere. Okay, so you can sense, you can sense sort of the, like the proclamation to the crowd. I'll follow you anywhere. Okay, Um, so... This guy who stands up and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Um, the rest of the crowd is standing there thinking, I'm never going to do that. I, I don't want to go there. I would never set foot in that city. Uh, I would never go set foot in any of the cities of the Decapolis, the 10 cities. Um, it's a level of social deviance that the people are not willing to entertain. And this one guy stands up and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Um, is this really an act of bravery and devotion or is there something else happening? Um, well, Let's look at, the, at what this word means. He's a, it, it says that he's a, a teacher of the law. Some of your translations will say scribe. Um, and other places in the Bible it's translated as scribe. But it's more than that because when you think of scribe, you're, you're mainly thinking of somebody who simply translates one book into another book. It was, it was a job a lot of slaves had that they did. Um, but this man, the weight of this word is not that, even though it's translated that regularly. So the NIV says teacher of the law. It's more accurate. The word is grammatos. Everyone say grammatos. Okay, keeping you awake. Okay, uh, it basically means an expert of the law or a scholar in the Holy Scriptures. Highly educated, highly honorable in the city. Likely wealthy because um, he's had so much education. Likely makes a great living also working as a scribe on the side. Gets probably paid handsomely by people to um, teach their children. And a, a really high up guy. Um, always look at, and, and you get there by taking every opportunity to sort of climb higher. And so there's this teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a traveling healer and a preacher. And he's got this whole new idea. And this guy likely, he's well-studied. He would have known about all the schools of thought in Judaism, from Shammai up to Hillel, every, all the six to five of in between. And now there's this new guy, Jesus, who comes, and he's got this new teaching. And he likely... Uh, looks at this guy and says, okay, so this guy's got potential. He's already getting a lot of followers. So there's several things that he can benefit from following this guy. He says, I can follow you. I will follow you anywhere. So the first thing he's, he's, he's going to do is he's going to learn the teachings of Jesus, and then he's going to become a teacher because this is how rabbinical studies worked. He would become a promoter and a teacher of Jesus. And if this school became a big school, well-established, he would forever be cemented as a great teacher of this school. Second, uh, Jesus is obviously doing things that are messianic. He's, he's putting off signals that signal that he is the Messiah, as a lot of people did back then, and they were all killed for it, okay? So Jesus is putting off the Messiah vibe. You've seen it. You haven't. Um, he's putting off the Messiah vibe, and this guy, 
just in case Jesus actually turns out to be the Messiah, their idea of the Messiah was the one that would come in, overthrow Rome, um, establish the kingdom of Israel. And if this happened, and if this, guy, if this guy actually became the ruler of the new unified people of Israel, then he would be at the top of the food chain. This is opportunism. This is somebody who, who sees uh, an opportunity to climb some social ladders. And he steps up when everybody else is sort of silent, like, you want us to go over there? And he steps up and says, teacher, I will follow you everywhere. And Jesus has an answer for him. Jesus looks at him and he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. So he says, riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> and he, and he, he makes literally a riddle. Now, um, talks about foxes having dens. Birds have nests. He's talking about the natural order of beasts of the field and the air. And, and they have natural things that they all do exactly the same. And then he makes a double entendre. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He points out foxes sleep in dens. Birds sleep in nests. People, we don't have a natural place that we lay our head. We're wanderers of the earth. All right? So there's a double entendre. First off, he's sort of saying son of man like human beings. Also... This is a buzzword for the Jewish people. The idea of the Son of Man, I'm not going to go into all the details of it. We don't have time, and it's, it's kind of complicated. But in the book of Daniel, connected with some ancient texts of Isaiah, um, there's this idea, there's this phrase, Son of Man, and it signifies authority. All right? This guy wants authority. This is what this guy wants, this teacher of the law, this grammatos. He wants authority. And Jesus says, Son of Man, ah, that's authority. But the Jewish people know that the idea of the Son of Man is not just authority, it's also authority through suffering. They are connected. Every time you see them in the Scriptures, there is a connection, especially in the book of Matthew. Matthew's going to use this phrase two more times. Maybe one of these times we'll really get into it. The idea is you attain authority, you go up through going down. You attain authority through suffering. Good thing comes about through the bad thing. Spring only comes about because winter came first. All right? So Jesus says to this guy who's only used to good things and expects good things, he looks at him and he says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. The path to the honor that you want is not what you think it is. Okay. Now, it ends there and we have another guy who steps up and it goes like this. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. When you, when you read the passage in modern English, um, we have a specific mindset about death if somebody dies, um, you take a few days, they, they, they go to the morgue, they get embalmed in the fluids and everything, and they're preserved for a few days, and you have plenty of time, three days up to a week, to make funeral preparations. Um, and so when we read this, we picture uh, someone whose father has died, and they're making funeral preparations, and he says, it seems very nice. He says, I'm going to go with you, but I have to, I have to bury my father. Um, but that just shows that we're reading this through a modern lens. In the first century... A Jewish funeral happened the same day someone died. Exact same day. The morning started that day. You had to get the person in the ground because decomposition started instantly. Um, and so that day by sundown, they would get him in the ground. Um, after about uh, from one to three years, um, well, hold on. For the, first, for the first week after the death, the whole family would be in mourning. They would stay home. They wouldn't leave the house. So first off, this guy's not at home. Okay? His, I would argue... This is the first sign that his father didn't just die. Okay? Second, um, one to three years after somebody was buried, they would let the decomposition process take place. 
and there would be bones left and they would gather the bones and he would put the bones in an ossuary. And the ossuary would be put in a family sepulcher. Okay? It's where all the family would be kept together, all their bones. Um, what this guy is talking about is not the idea that his father just died and needs to be buried. What this guy is t- saying was a very regular thing that people would say in his day. Um, and it has everything to do with, um, my parents are still alive and I'm expecting an inheritance and I'm going to stay home and live with them until they die. And then I'm going to receive my inheritance. I want to carry the family name. I'm going to receive the land and the money. And I'm going to carry on um, the rich legacy of my family. Okay? Are you with me? This is what's happening here. This guy is not doing this big noble thing and saying, my father just died. I need to go bury him. What is happening here is this guy, is, he's saying, I want to follow you. I want to do your work. But first, I got to get mine. I got to go do my thing first. Maybe you're connecting with this somehow. Maybe like you have a plan. Yeah, one day I would love to do something like that. I would love to be generous. I would love to live a sacrificial life. I would love to take part in establishing justice and peace in this world. I would love to take part in, uh, in, in the act of proclaiming Jesus as Lord amongst the nations um, and offering the world this new way and taking part in the kingdom of God. I would, I, one day I plan on the kingdom of God being the center of my being and who I am. Um, however, there's some stuff I got to do. I've seen some really great stuff on HGTV that I plan on having one day. Um, and, you know, like I've got plans. Okay. So this is where we're at. We have no idea how long this is going to take. This guy could basically be saying, I've, I've, I have a few years. I need to get some stuff done. And Jesus looks at him and says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What do the kids say? Savage? Um, <laughs> 37 and I have a cane now all of a sudden. Um, okay, so let's deconstruct this, this line. Jesus is saying, the ones who stay home um, are the opposite of the ones who are following him. The ones who are following him, he basically is saying they're, they're alive. They're alive. Um, he's basically telling him, I mean, you're as good as dead. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. You, this, you, you want to you stay home? You want, like, when does your life begin? When does it start? I've, I've read sermons. I've read sermons here, um, portions of them that were written by, um, one of them in particular was written by, uh, by a man who was a pastor, and, and he found out he had like six months to live. He had this cancer that was eating him, and he just found it, and it turned out he was going to die. And he stands up and says, I thought I had another 40 years to repay my debts, to become the kind of person that I always believed I would be, um, to establish myself and figure out how to do the work of God, um, to save and then become a generous person. I thought I had all this time to become the person I always planned on being for my spiritual assimilation to take place. I thought I had time, um, but I will now, turns out I will die as I am now. And he's telling his congregation, like, what are we waiting for? Are you waiting to live? Um, What this really is, all of this, in my mind, is a conversation about how you really view 
um, the life of following Jesus. I want you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself if you really believe following Jesus as Lord in this world is a superior lifestyle. Or if you perhaps, deep inside of you, might believe that maybe it's an inferior lifestyle to what is being presented to you. We all struggle with this. Uh, The first step to this would be honesty and confession. The lifestyle that, the, the, the calling, the lords that are out there all telling us, this will make you happy, this, will make, this, is, this is what you want in life. Um, this is meaningful, this is wonderful, this will fulfill. It's very appealing. And oftentimes it makes you think that like following Jesus is, I mean, it's an inferior life. It's not as fulfilling. I mean, you don't think that all the, uh, the apostles, the disciples dealt with this? You don't think Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was struggling with this when he prayed his prayer and said, Father, is there any other way? Is there perhaps some way that this cup could pass from me to someone else? This is a real struggle. Um, is it an inferior lifestyle in your mind, in your heart, to live as Jesus, as your Lord? Or are there other things that promise Safety, security. Are there other things that promise, you know, comfort, happiness, joy, the picturesque thing that you have been promised that everyone has painted all over TV? I I think we should be honest about this. We struggle with the superiority of, of Jesus as Lord. Part of the Christian lifestyle is it entails what we call the spiritual disciplines. Every one of these disciplines is designed to confront these struggles in your life. Regular fasting, so that you can remind yourself, this is not what this is not what keeps me alive. All these things, tangible things, are not what give me life. Um, Silence and solitude. It's part of silence. Is like I don't I don't need to speak. I don't need to manage my image for anyone else. I don't need to argue the path. I don't need to, I can, I can be silenced with who I am here in solitude. I don't need the approval of others. I don't need all of that. Um, and then there's prayer, the regular discipline of sitting and aligning your heart and your mind with the path of God every single day. All of these things, you know what these, I, I've, I've, I've drawn this 20 times and I, I keep, I do it for myself and I remind myself, there's all these parts in your life that are just fragmented and they're everywhere. And there's sometimes we're like, yes, you proclaim Jesus as Lord, but then you look at parts of your life and you see that they're not. And the whole idea with the spiritual disciplines is there's not this one moment. I always, I always kind of like warn against like summer camp Christianity. Like the idea that like there's going to be a one moment where suddenly everything's just going to boom and things are going to be as they should be. That's not the Christian life. It is a daily, one foot in front of the other, every day working to align yourself, asking yourself every day, is Jesus Lord of this? Is Jesus Lord of this? Is Jesus Lord of this? And aligning it all together. Um, Because if you think about it, this whole passage, all of chapter eight is about one thing. It looks fragmented. There's these miracles and there's lepers and there's healings. 
Uh, there's a Roman centurion whose child is healed. There's all these things. And then there's this. There's actually one from beginning to end of chapter 8. There is one message. It is about the authority of Jesus. There's even a long conversation about this with the centurion who looks at Jesus and says, look, I'm somebody who understands authority. I have, I have 80 soldiers underneath me. Um, they'll do whatever I tell them to do. They'll kill if I tell them to kill. Um, and I look at Jesus and I recognize the authority of Jesus. This is what the centurion said to Jesus. He says, I recognize your authority. All of this, all of chapter 8 is about authority. Okay, And so there's all these miracles and all this. The whole point of this, if you look at this one little passage, it actually doesn't seem to fit because there's miracle, 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 random conversation about getting in a boat and going across the water, miracle, miracle, miracle. What is this right here? This part in the middle. This is intentional. This is Matthew. This is Matthew writing a letter to his church with something in mind for them. This is the equivalent. This passage is the equivalent of those movies where action is happening and all of a sudden there's this pause and the, the actor looks at the camera. And he talks to the audience on the camera. And it's like everything disappears. And Jesus, I mean, think about this passage. We, we don't know who these guys are. We're not really told even if either of them are one of the actual 12 disciples. We don't even know what final decision they made. We're not told that. We don't know whether they got in the boat or didn't get in the boat. Do you know why we're not told any of that? Because they're you. There's all this authority talk. And then Jesus stops and looks at the camera and says, now let's talk about authority in your life. Because we, we, we're really good at like pointing out Jesus is, you know, Christianity is the greatest religion. And, and all, we, we like to point out like the supremacy of Christ and all of these things. Um, and, and we point out the supremacy of it and the power of Christ. And we're always talking about these things, but they're far away. And what this passage does is it says, okay, let's, what about you? You are the disciple in the passage. You are, um, maybe you are the well-educated person, um, the scribe who has honor and greatness, and you're living life. You're going to write leadership books. You're going you're to get the fame and the fortune. And you're like, I'm, and you know why I do all this? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and when you do this, you're actually taking your big greatness and honor and attaching it to Jesus who has big and greatness and honor. And, and it's really, Jesus looks at you and says, but what if I asked you to give up all that? Is, that? is that what you want? Because my salvation only comes through suffering, pouring myself out. And then there's the person who has these great dreams, these things they want to buy, these things they want to save for. The person, let me go and get mine first, and then I'll help you with yours. Um, and Jesus is confronting that. You're likely one of these people. And the whole premise of this passage it's like we're, Jesus walks up and says, hey, we're going to get in the boat and we're going to go over there. I, I want you to come with me. Jesus intends to go places you will likely not want to go, to engage with people you don't want to engage with, to do the difficult work that you likely don't want to do because it may cost comfort. He's calling you to follow him and pouring yourself out. He's calling you to maybe take a black eye here and there. Um, and then he's going and he, he just walks down and gets in the boat and you're left asking the same questions as the person, as the people in the story. It's, it's brilliant writing. 
Um, and every time in Christian history that the, the, that the believers of Jesus have come to this passage, they've had to pause and reflect on this. I talk about the authority of Christ over all these things and these ideas, and I have these grand doctrines, and I talk about how great they are, but like, what about, is Jesus actually have authority over me? It's a, it's a huge question. And I think too many people, they don't, they don't want to make waves, and so they won't get in the boat with Jesus. I mean, if you read the very next story, that's very literal. They get in the boat, and the storm creeps up. And that's intentional. You get in the boat, it's going to get crazy. It's going to get difficult. It's going to get uncomfortable. And the storm rages, and Jesus stands up and calms the storm. Um, discipleship, this is, a, this is a passage about discipleship. It's asking you whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus. Discipleship is about authority. And, and hear me out. Too many Christians, they think that they have a rabbi, a disciple, a Talmudim followed a rabbi, a teacher. Too many Christians believe that they have a rabbi, but what they actually have is an agenda, a religious order, and a set of beliefs. That's what they have. They're not following a person. They're not following Jesus. They're following a religious order um, oftentimes rooted in the nationalism of whatever country they are living in that has adopted the local tribal thinking of their day. I mean, he talked about a few minutes ago how the, the churches were getting tribal and not letting people from other countries in. This is what churches tend to do. They get tribal. They, they, they get wrapped up. They get discipled in the theology of their nation. Revelation is clear. There will come a time when these nations are gone. They all fall. One, there's a beast in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, the image of Rome, and it's like a lion with wings, and he's, and he's flying, and somehow the lion is yelling something, like he's talking, um, and he's yelling, um, Jesus is victor. Jesus is the victor. It's going, it, this is a Roman symbol. The Romans had this guy that they would carve him everywhere, and the whole story of, of Romans was, Rome is the victor. Rome would always stand. Rome was the greatest thing in the world. And the Christians knew better. The Christians knew nothing that they were doing mattered. The Christians knew there is one Lord and it's Jesus. And this is who we live by. This entire passage is like this wake-up call to you. Yes, the teachings of Jesus, they're incredibly beautiful. We've just, we finished studying the Sermon on the Mount. They're, they're culture-changing, they're life-altering. And you can know all about them and think they're fascinating and inspiring. And they can encourage you. And you're like, wow, Jesus can heal all these people. And look how gracious he is to the sick, poor, even the powerful, healing the son of them and bringing people together. That's amazing. And then Jesus looks right at you. And he says, what about you? You're like, I, I think it's great. No, no. I want, I want you to go. I want you to go across the lake. Look, I mean... I plan on it. I plan on crossing the lake. No, like, the boat's right. Here's the shore. Here's the boat. Cross the lake. Yeah, but I just met this guy. He's really cute. Cross the lake. I got stuff to, I got stuff to do. Um, I mean, what'll this, will this look good on my LinkedIn profile? Will this forever change my Facebook profile pic? 
Will people see me online and will this be great for my image? And we aren't told how this ends on purpose because that is up to you. And I love that passage. Um, And what Jesus is calling to is to pour ourselves out, body broken, blood poured out, and that's how salvation enters into the world. And by the way, for centuries, the, the mothers and fathers of the Christian faith have written about the fulfilling life, the, the, the life-giving grace and peace of Jesus, living this life of Jesus as Lord. Even the ones who suffered terribly. And so every single day, there, there will be this struggle. In this moment, how will I respond here? What will I do here? There is this struggle for... Is this an inferior lifestyle? Is following Jesus an inferior lifestyle? Admit that that is a struggle. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Slowly, bit by bit, and as, as, as meaningfully as you can, align yourself with the teachings of Christ. Give Jesus authority of your own life. That is the goal. We're going to spend some time, and we're going to take communion. Oh, see, a little late. So our communion servers, you guys can take the elements if you're here. Yeah, they're here. Um, And you're going to spread around the room, and we're going to take some time. I want you to ponder the authority of Jesus in your own life. Many of you are are well-studied and well-educated, and you understand these difficult, intricate things of Jesus. Um, that That is not the mission. That is not the goal. The goal is to actually let Jesus have authority in your own life. Are you willing to pour yourself out? Um, And so we're going to spend some time in prayer. And uh, we'll give you a few minutes of peace. And then come to the table. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ spilled for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Change us. Awaken us. Guide us. Align us. um, Every part of our lives with you. Help us not just to mentally ascend and understand a, a system of beliefs, a set of doctrines. Help us to find a rabbi. Help us to follow. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen.